All right. A uh, little, little sleep deprived this morning. Been staying up watching the Braves the last three nights. So you know how that goes. They go out on the West Coast and uh, we, have, we are up till 2 or 3 in the morning. Then they, they win or lose and you can't sleep for two hours, you know. So anyways, we're here though. All right. Uh, did you hear about what happened to the chicken that crossed the road? Didn't hear? I, they don't really know, but uh, they said it was pure poultry in motion. <laughs> All right. If you haven't been in our class last week, of course, it's been a couple weeks. So I hope you enjoyed Brother Evans last week. I, I thought it was a wonderful weekend. We had some good lessons. He brought some good thoughts to us, made me think a little bit, and uh, that's a good thing, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We're back in the book of Mark today. We're going to be in chapter 2 and continuing on with our study. As you know, before we left off, the, Jesus had begun his ministry. He had begun uh, healing those who were sick. He healed a leper. He healed a paralytic. He was casting out demons. And the scribes decided, we've got to get rid of this dude. Right? And they started conniving in their hearts. Because the guy was healing people. We can't have that, right? Of course not. So... Jesus' ministry has begun. He's going into different cities. And the scribes were conniving because he had claimed to forgive sins. Imagine that. This man claims he can forgive sins. Well, that's blasphemy, is it not? And also, he was doing things with the sinners. He was eating with the tax collectors. That's a big no-no. Wasn't supposed to be doing that, right? And so they're conniving, they're, they're talking amongst themselves to what can we do about this guy. And we're going to continue that kind of in our passage today as we're going to, he's going to get some questions. And it's wonderful how he responds to these questions because he knows what these guys are thinking. He knows what's in their hearts. And let's begin reading in Mark chapter 2 there in verse 18. It says, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else a new piece pulls away from the old, and the tares made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. All right, so now we got some coming to him saying, Hey, uh, Jesus, your, your disciples are eating. You know, why aren't they fasting like the rest of them? They're not as, uh, you know, devout. They're not as pious as John's disciples or, or the Pharisees, right? Because they're not fasting. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, as long as the bridegroom's here, we're not going to fast. We're going to party. I don't mean that in a bad way. We're going to feast. We're going to eat. The bridegroom's here. Why should we fast when the bridegroom's here? In other words, he's with his disciples. He's in the flesh. God with us. That's what his name means. As long as I'm here, there's no need to fast. We need to be feasting. Interesting concept, right? The law of Moses did ordain one fast. That was it. Turn over to Leviticus 23 if you want to read about that with me. And let's see what was said about fasting. <clears throat> if I can 
get over there. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse uh, 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does, not, who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. It doesn't say you shall fast, but that phrase there is generally considered to be fasting. Or, if nothing else, denying yourself. On the Day of Atonement, they were told they needed to humble themselves, deny themselves, because that's the day when the high priest went in the Holy of Holies, their sins were rolled forward, right? Uh, and they were to be humbled on that day. That's really the only place in the old law where they're told to do that. And so they practiced that. And Luke 18, um, you can read, I'm not going to read it, but you can read about the fact that the Pharisees and those were... Uh, doing this constantly in fact you remember the prayer between the tax collector and the pharisee and the tax said i was fasting twice a week which was the custom that's what they were doing so this is something that was in common practice at this time right they're asking jesus why aren't your disciples fasting like the rest of them jesus responds well he uses that bridegroom illustration right he uses that feasting that thing that says as long as the bridegroom's here we're gonna we're gonna eat there's no need to fast while he's here. Wait until he's gone. He also comes up with that thing about the new cloth not being sold on an old garment. Now, I'm not a seamstress. Uh, you know, used to when you had a pair of jeans, you got a hole in it, and your mama put a patch on them, right? Nowadays, I, they just let it go, you know? They just wear it with the tears and rips in it. I guess that's the thing. I don't know. Well, what happens when you put a new patch on an old garment? Ladies, it's going to tear away eventually, right? So what do you do? Do you get an old patch or do you just go them out and get a new pair of jeans? I don't know. But the point is, he's saying, there's something new coming. And we're not going to put the old things on the new. Also, the wineskins thing there. You don't put new wine in an old wineskin, right? That old wineskin has become formed to the old wine. It's, it's become harder. It's become brittle, perhaps. And then you put the new wine in there, and what's going to happen to it? It's just going to rip open. It's going to expand or whatever. You know the chemistry to that. It's going to rip open, and the wine will be spilled. There's something new coming. He's trying to tell them a little bit here about you're witnessing something new. Get past your old traditions. Get past the old law. Yeah, they're still under the law of Moses at this time. But eventually, that's going to change, right? And he's trying to warn them. There's new things coming, not the ritualistic fasting that the Pharisees do, but the true love, the true doctrine that Jesus is bringing in. Some observations about this. He does say that his disciples will fast in those days when the bridegroom is no longer with them. When Jesus' ministry on earth is over, some fasting would be appropriate. He did not rule it out. 
Turn over to Matthew 6. And let's read something that he said about that while on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Matthew 6, verse 16. He says, Moreover, when you fast, do not do like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, he's, he's saying here there's nothing wrong with fasting. In fact, it's a good thing to do, especially when you're at a time of, of, uh, of humility, a time when you're needing to seek out the Father's help, seek out the Father's guidance, right? It's a good thing to do, but he says, don't do it like the Pharisees who go out there and, you know, put makeup on or whatever to show how, oh, I'm so lowly, I'm, I'm fasting, you know. I hadn't eaten in five days, look at me. I say, no, do it in secret, and then you're going to get your reward. It has to be from the heart. It's not about pleasing men, right? It's about pleasing God. So there is a place for this, right? The place for fasting and don't do it to impress men. In fact, the early church practiced this. Let's turn over to Acts and see some things that went on in the early church. Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> see some examples here. Acts chapter 13, beginning of verse 1. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Here we have an example of Barnabas and Saul about to be sent out. They're praying to the Father about what to do, how this is to happen, where they should go, and to be with them, right? Part of that prayer is they're fasting. They're humbling themselves. They're afflicting their souls. It's a good thing. Helps them to be humble. Helps them to show their focus on the Father. They're willing to ask for his help, right? They're willing to ask for his providence in their lives. Turn over to chapter 14 there. Let's begin reading in uh, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to uh, Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Hmm. So here we are establishing churches in these cities in Galatia, and they're fasting and praying, appointing elders. Do we do that when we appoint elders here? Maybe we pray, but I doubt too many of us fasted during that time, right? Maybe you did. I don't know. But it's a good thing. Perhaps that's a time to do that. Tell yourself to go to the Father afflicting your soul, praying about that. Who should lead us? Who should be one of our leaders, right? <clears throat> Paul also had this in his ministry. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 6. And you remember 1 Corinthians 7 when he talked about the husband and wife can be apart for a little while, but do not... Do that on a regular basis, only at a time of prayer and fasting. There's a place for it, but not to be ritualistic about it, not to be for show. 
perhaps with something we need to practice a little more around here. I can't remember ever really fasting. Uh, I might skip a meal. You know, I might eat three meals instead of five on a day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it's something we don't really do, right? It's just kind of, I don't know, not our thing. I don't know. Maybe it's something to try, though. Maybe some of you have tried that. I don't know. Anyways, there is a place for it. Jesus was saying, not gonna, no need for that right now, but there will be in the future. Uh, <clears throat> turn, you, remember, you remember this parable of the persistent widow? I'm not going to go read it, but Luke 18, where she kept on and on about the, uh, she was complaining and she finally got service from the magistrate because he got tired of her complaining. That's a parable, believe it or not. Now, that doesn't mean we should continue to complain in our prayers, but we should be persistent. There is, that is very scriptural, to be persistent in our prayer about what we need, what we, we're asking for, right? Through humility and through perhaps fasting, denying ourselves. God is more likely to respond if we are afflicted in our souls when we come before him. Matthew 6, that's where he says it. There is a place of fasting, but not rituals, not making a, a ritual habit about it. Uh, fasting is pretty much left up to our discretion. There's no command that says we have to do it. We don't observe the Day of Atonement anymore. That was under the old law. <clears throat> but when properly understood, it can be a valuable spiritual blessing, perhaps. Also in this passage, he talks about something else here. He's questioned about the fasting, obviously, and he replies with a couple of things there. You know, the bridegroom and his friends, the, old, uh, the new patch on an old garment, and then he talks about this wine and wineskins thing, right? Now, I don't think too many of you in here, or hopefully you're not a drinker. Uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, maybe you have been in the past. I don't know. And you probably know a lot more about this than I do. I'm not a wine drinker, so I don't know much about it. And now I guess today, you know, that wine is in the bottle. So, I don't know, can you put old wine in a new bottle? I don't know. But back then, they didn't have bottles, right? They had wineskins made from sheepskin or whatever it was, and they could be, it was pliable, right? You put a new wineskin and a new, I put new wine in a new wineskin, it would kind of form to a shape, right? It'd be kind, and you can imagine today, if you did that, how that would work. But after a while, that sheepskin gets old, it gets hardened, it gets uh, brittle, right? And you put new wine in it, it's going to bu uh, bust open. What's this talking about with this? What's he implying here? Well, he's perhaps saying that there's something new, guys. There's something new coming, and that's why I'm here, right? I'm bringing a new doctrine. It's not the old law. It's not the old things. It's not the old ways, traditions. I got something new going here. We're going to be blessed. We're going to be blessed by God through the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, through his death and Sacrifice. They don't understand that yet, but that's kind of what he's alluding to here, isn't it? And not only that, they're going to have true forgiveness. Hebrews 10 talks about that. Hebrews 10 describes the true forgiveness, not from bulls and goats, but from the sacrifice of the one true God, the one Son of God, the great sacrificial lamb. So, Perhaps what he's getting at here is these new wineskins are the new structures that he's putting in place here. 
For example, baptism instead of circumcision. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2 and let's just read that. <clears throat> read what that says. <clears throat> Colossians 2, verse 11. In him <clears throat> you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without, without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What Paul's saying there is you've been baptized into Christ. You now have the circumcision of the heart, not the circumcision of the flesh, which was assigned to the Jews. But you now have been baptized in him, raised to newness of life. This is something new. Right? This is something that's not of the old law that they were talking about, that Jesus was bringing forth. So perhaps that's one of the things he's talking about. Uh, Hebrews 9, he talks about the scriptural tabernacle, right, rather than the physical tabernacle. In other words, the temple of our hearts, not a physical temple, but our bodies, our, our hearts. That's where God is now living. That's now he's residing. Remember Peter's sermon in Acts 2? He, talked, he quoted Prophet Joel and said, God's spirit will be poured out into the hearts of men. So perhaps these are the things he's talking about here. Trying to uh, let the disciples, let the Pharisees know that there's, there's something new going on here. We're not going back to the old. We're not going back and putting the new wine into the old wineskins, right? Some wanted to put Jesus in the old wineskins, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted him to be put back in that bottle of the Old Testament, right? Of course, they are still under the law, and Jesus is observing the tenets of the law, but he's saying things are changing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is some examples of putting new wine into old wineskins? Well, perhaps like we just talked about, the ritualistic fasting that they tried to do, perhaps the separate priesthood, uh, rather than all believers, you know, that's kind of come on in the last 2,000 years, right? There's some dominations that say we got to have a separate priesthood, right? How about uh, doing things like baptizing babies, right? Based on the Old Testament rite of circumcision. That's when circumcision was done, right? When a Jewish male was born. Eight days after he was born, he was circumcised. Infant baptism, kind of the same thing trying to put new wine into old wineskins. <clears throat> so they're putting Jesus into the old, trying to put Jesus, in, uh, his new wine into old wineskin. And others today might be doing some other things, right? They might be trying to package uh, Jesus' wine in modern concepts, right? Uh, they might be trying to take that aged wine and repackage it might be something they're doing with you know things like worship things like church organization things like the way church work is done or their leadership you know we have priests popes women pastors things like that repackaging that new wine that jesus brought in doing things outside of what he talked about some put their own wine in jesus wineskins right some will say that the Spirit's guiding them into new revelation. Think about Joseph Smith and the Mormons. Found the golden tablets, you know, were buried. The 
Angel Maroney, Maroni came and told him where they were. That's what the whole Mormon church came about from, was new revelation. Hmm. Some believe the Spirit guides them to make these changes, changing both the message and the organization. You think about a lot of the cults, Jehovah's Witness, right? The Seventh-day Adventists, all those have had new revelation throughout the history. That's where they're coming from. Got to be careful about that, right? The attitude reflects a disregard for both the original wine and the wineskins. Many believe we can just discard it. Many believe we can just take the wine and wineskins Jesus gave and change it up, right? We can replace this wine. We can presume to believe we can improve on what Jesus brought in. Well, <clears throat> the point Jesus is making is you guys are buried in your traditions. You guys are trying to keep things that's going to change, right? He's bringing in something new. The law of God is now becoming the law of love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Like he designed it. Like he wanted it in the first place before sin crept in. After 2,000 years, Jesus' wine, you might say, is kind of old. But like little wine, the old is better than the new, right? I don't drink wine, but I, I see things on TV, I guess, or whatever. And, you know, they always bring out the, the 1734 Rose Blanc, whatever. This is, you know, cost you $10,000 for a bottle of wine, you know. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. But that's the thing, right? I guess the older wine, the aged wine is supposed to be better for some reason. And that's true with Jesus. His new wine is now old. But it's still better than anything we have, right? Anything we can change, anything we can try to apply to it. We need to keep the old, new wine and not put it into old wineskins. That's kind of an interesting concept, right? And it's a little bit vague. Uh, has to do with your understanding. They probably understood that better than we did uh, because of, uh, you know, that, their feasts and so forth that they had to deal with. But that's something to think about, right? Well, he's going to go on and talk about some other things. And let's go back to Mark chapter 2 and read on about that. Mark chapter 2 and in verse 23 says, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, <clears throat> and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. All right. Here we have these religious leaders trying to find something wrong with them again. Man, they are one conniving bunch, right? They can't stand this guy's coming in and all these people are following him, you know? I mean, he's actually healing people. Imagine that. And they're trying to find anything they can to catch him, right? Well, I guess the disciples got a little hungry as they went through the field on the Sabbath, they decided to eat. Imagine that. 
Jesus says, remember what David did? Well, what did David do? Well, he, well, he ate the showbread. Remember that? In fact, let's go over there and look at it. Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse uh, 23, or 22, he says, And it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread. Let's see, I'm getting ahead of myself there. Let's go to, uh, actually, that's not where I wanted to go. <coughs> well, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 21, I'm completely by completely getting mixed up here. First Samuel, move over there. And let's read about David. <clears throat> First Samuel 20 says, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one is with you. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you. Or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, why have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken before, before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Here we have something done that's not in the law, right? David and his group, hungry, they need something to eat. The only thing there is the showbread, and so they take from it, right? Well, he's using these examples to show them that there are certain things that kind of take precedence in the law. Stay there in Exodus, and let's look over at something else there about this Sabbath thing. Exodus 16, and verse 22. So it was on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses, and then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, boil what you'll boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up to morning as Moses had commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Here we have the first time the Israelites have heard anything about a Sabbath is when they were in the wilderness. God's providing them the manna in the morning, the meat in the evening, the quail and so forth. And he's saying, but on the seventh day, we're going to rest. That means on Saturday, you got to take double portions. Oh, and by the way, it's not going to spoil. I'll make sure of that. And you are to rest on that seventh day. And it, you know it's the first time they've heard about it because if you read on verse seven, 27, now it happened that some, in, some people went out on the seventh day to gather. <laughs> I mean, it don't matter what you tell people. They're still going to ignore it or 
not listen to you or whatever, and they're going to go do it anyways, right? And they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Yes, remembering the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. It was codified in the Ten Commandments. But it was something that was only given to Israel. The patriarchs didn't know about this. In fact, we know that kind of from that example. But if you turn over to Nehemiah, you can see something else that's said about that. Nehemiah chapter uh, 9. Let's go with verse 13. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. When he came on Mount Sinai, that's the first time they'd ever heard about this Sabbath. Well, a couple thousand years before that, right? At least. This was a command that was given to Israel, to the Jews, as part of his covenant, as part of a promise that he made to them, I mean, a part of a sign that he gave to them for their slavery. Turn over to Deuteronomy there. Let's see what's said about that. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. chapter 5 verse 15 he says and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by mighty hand and by an outstretched arm therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day because of that deliverance that was a sign for that right now you might say well didn't Moses talk about how God rested on the seventh day yeah read that in Genesis 2 but that's called a prolepsis where perhaps Moses inserted it to show what the Sabbath was about, why that command came in, what it was referring to. They didn't know about this until then. And it's something today that we can be thankful for to understand that the New Testament has replaced it. That's been nailed to the cross, right? Um, Jesus was the Son of Man. He had authority to change things, right? He had authority to give commandments. He had authority to take these away. And we had a good study on the Sabbath not too long ago. And I'm going to read something from the outline about what you might consider about this as far as the old law goes. This is from McGarvey's Fourfold Gospel. It's a little bit technical, but he says, A higher law where it conflicts with the lower one would suspend or limit the lower one at the point of conflict. Thus, the higher law of worship in the temple... And this is referring back to uh, uh, where's Matthew 12, uh, where Matthew adds the example of priests worshiping in the temple on the Sabbath, which was not to be done. It says the higher law suspends or limits the lower one at that point. Thus, the higher law of worship in the temple suspended the lower law of Sabbath observance. And thus, also, the higher law of mercy suspended the lower law as to the showbread when David took it and mercifully gave it to his hungry followers. 
and when God's mercy permitted this to be done. So I'm not sure that it's that technical, right? I mean, I understand the new law has replaced the old law. The new law has come in with Christ's sacrifice, his resurrection. We now have a law of love. We now no longer need that Sabbath rest, that sign that the Jews had, just like that sign of circumcision, right? Those are all from the old law. That's something that's been replaced. <clears throat> in fact, we have an example, right? Turn over to Acts chapter 20. See what was going on in the early church. Verse 7, Acts 20. Now on the first day of the week, when was that? Sunday, right? When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. They were meeting on the first day. Why the first day? Well, what happened on the first day? Jesus was resurrected, right? He was sacrificed on a Friday, resurrected on a Sunday, third day. That's the day they were meeting together, breaking bread, Paul's delivering a sermon, they spoke till midnight. That's when they were getting together. We have that example. <clears throat> so the Sabbath is not something they were keeping, per se, in the, Old in the New Testament. There were those that told them they needed to do it. There were those that were complaining about it, I'm sure. We don't have record of that necessarily in the New Testament. We have this example here with Jesus and his disciples. Another example that Paul writes out. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Let's see something else that he said. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 14. He says, Having wiped out the handwriting and requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross talking about the Old Testament. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up, by his fleshly mind. Paul is saying, these things were there as a foreshadow of Christ. They were pointing to him. Right? He's come into the world. He's given us hope. He's given us a Sabbath. Rest, peace, comfort. A time to be uh, hopeful, you know, restful from our work yeah it doesn't mean we don't serve but we now don't have to worry what's going to happen he is with us he's provided us a reward right that's why these things have been done away with the manner of his observance was a major issue during his ministry and there are many today that still question whether we should be keeping the sabbath right but I think we can be rest assured that it's something that was done away. It's something that was nailed to the cross. It's something that was replaced when the new covenant came in. Let no one judge you in food or drink 
or new moons or Sabbath. I know some of you probably had to deal with folks. I know some personally who have, and I hope that can help you in your talking. And a lot of this comes from folks who, well, let's just say their hearts are a little hard, right? Go back to Mark there real quick and begin chapter 3. See what he says here. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely. Whether we, notice, I love these verses. I love this passage. Listen to what happens here. Just picture this in your mind. So they watched him closely. They got their eyes on him, man. They're surveilling him, you know. They got nighttime goggles on him. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. How hard does your heart have to be to be looking out for God to see if he's going to heal somebody for crying out loud? And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they want to do, right? What's he do? Step forward. And then he says to them, I, I would love to have been here, sitting, knowing all this is going on and hear what he has to say. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Because he knows in their minds that they're completely crazy. I mean, is it okay to save a life on the Sabbath? Is it okay to kill somebody? Think about what he's saying there. But they kept silent. <laughs> they don't say anything. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Can you imagine? These guys just don't get it. What have I got to do? He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Yeah, he knows what these guys are thinking, what they're wanting to do. Did it stop him? No. No, he ain't going to stop him. He's got a little righteous indignation going on there, right? I mean, these crazy idiots, they just don't get it. I mean, he's healing people for unbelievable, you know? If I was seeing that, I'd think, I, you know, God is with us or something or Something crazy is going on here. I may not understand it, but I'm not going to sit there and try to put him in jail. These guys' hearts were hardened. Conflict does what to you? Yeah, it can make you hard. Hard. It can escalate to criticism or conniving to put someone in jail. Pharisees were seeking every opportunity to accuse him, right? Jesus healed this man. They were conspiring. They weren't saying anything to him, but they... We're doing it in our hearts. This has been around for a long time, right? Remember Cain? Cain's heart was hardened, right? Pharaoh, how many times does his heart get hardened? He'd say, let him go, and then he'd come back and say, no. Israel, how many times was Israel's heart hardened? And they went under oppression, and then they would cry out, and God would deliver them. This also did something where it prompted Jesus to teach in parables. I know we're running out of time. If you will, turn over to Matthew chapter 13 there real quick. I want to read this. Have you ever wondered why were there so many parables in Jesus' ministry? Matthew chapter 13. Begin reading in verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing 
they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. So should I, so that I should heal them. Hard hearts, hard hearts produce hard thoughts, right? Make you do some stuff that just don't make any sense. Same occurs often in the realm of religious differences, right? We can become so hard that we can't see something when we're wrong, perhaps, right? I mean, think about the different denominations there are out there today, right? We have to be careful we're not getting in that same thing where we're in our own little corner and not trying to understand the word. Have to be careful about that, just like anybody else. <clears throat> Remember Acts 17, the Bereans were more noble because they searched the scripture after they heard what Paul had to say. That's something we have to be careful about ourselves. We have to be careful about not condemning those without compassion, right? Not, not having a hard heart so much that we become holier than thou. One way to combat that is to be in the word, be humble, perhaps do a little fasting, remembering who you are and that you are nothing without God. As long as you can keep that mindset, that will help a lot, right? Philip is for eight, developing, uh, dwelling in things, on things that are noble and pure. Developing a mind of Christ, Philippians 2. Um, just remember that. In fact, this, this one's so egregious, you know, that you had the scribes and the Herodians who were complete opposites from each other. The Herodians were in cahoots with Rome. The scribes and Pharisees hated Rome. But they were getting together because of their hardness of their heart. Conniving to try to do something with Jesus. It's going to get more interesting, folks. We're just at the beginning of it. I hope from this study, you, you know, we read the Gospels and it kind of gets a little, I don't know, rote at some point. But that's why we need to keep reading them. There's things in there that are so cool to understand. I mean, when you visualize things sometimes in your mind, you never thought about that before, right? It all of a sudden becomes clearer to you. Think about what Jesus is dealing with here. Yeah, we can read it. It don't seem on the page. But when you see it in your mind's eye, it can become very real. And it's perhaps some of the things you might have dealt with in your life. You can relate to a little bit. All right, I know we're past time. Thanks for being here.